Wow, that's short. I expect you guys to be talking, talking, talking. I'd have to tell you to quiet down. But anyway, hey, good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm part of the teaching team here at Seacoast, one of your missionaries on the side as well. My privilege to open the Word with you today. So open your Bibles, mark two passages if you want to follow with me quickly, all right? Put a marker in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, but then Go with me to Exodus chapter 20, where we will start. Exodus chapter 20. It's a great day to be together. Uh, for Becky and I, I was actually talking to someone before the service, and because of a whole strange lineup of uh, both tragedies and great things that have been going on in our lives, uh, this is like the second week since May 20th that Becky and I have been here. Um, and... Uh, We'll tell you a little more about that later, but it's great, great to be back with you, all right? So let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the wisdom of Scripture. Thank you for the relevance of Scripture in our everyday lives. Thank you that you, Father, know us so well, and you love us so deeply, and out of your knowledge and your love, you have clearly told us where life can be found. This path of life unveiled uh, centuries ago, Father, in the, in the Ten Commandments and explained by your gospel, made accessible by Jesus Christ. So we pray together that you would bring these truths from Old Testament, New Testament together in our lives. I pray, Father, this would be a topic that we could uh, kind of wrestle with together because I know, Father, in my own life, this is a challenge. And I think it's probably a challenge for each of us. So we ask you to teach us now in your word, in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Well, as we wrap up our series on God's uh, top ten list, the Ten Commandments, for kingdom living, uh, or as I like to say, life as it's meant to be lived by disciples, by followers of Christ. And, and if you're not there yet, this will be relevant to you as well today. But as we wrap up the series, we're going to look at what I think may just be the most challenging of all the commandments, maybe apart from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the big commandment. But underneath that, this one probably, for me at least, is the biggest challenge in life. We're going to look at the topic of coveting. You know, we've come off of a series of commands that if you look at the Ten Commandments with me in Exodus chapter 20, he talks about, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any type idols or, and worship other idols. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number 8, you shall not rem you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he goes into a series of pretty short ones, beginning in verse 12, honor your father and mother. Uh, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not lie, okay? I mean, just boom, 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 short statements, right? It's interesting that when he comes to commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet, he doesn't just go like, thou shalt not lie, steal, commit adultery, or covet. Well, let's go on. When he comes to this one, he actually gives you 35 words as he expounds on it. It's as if God knew that in our minds, we might be thinking, okay, kind of got that, got that, got that. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I think I'm in pretty good shape. So he begins to unpack what he really means by thou shalt not covet. 35 verses. We'll look at them in a minute. Is this a, oops. 
There we go. Let's get this back in place. Is this, uh, I'm a left ear preacher usually. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I'm trying to be more like Ryan, my hero. So I'm trying to work off the right ear. So anyway, if I'm a little bit right ear, here, here we go. Uh, if you're online and watching, pardon my craziness. Is this a problem in our culture? It's interesting that the word covet means to long for something. It means to, uh, the, the message translates it to lust after something, to, to long for it, to desire it. Uh, and, and the opposite, of course, would be the concept of contentment. I mean, if I'm content, I'm not coveting. If I'm coveting, I'm not content. It's kind of, that would be the opposite of coveting. So hence the title today, Don't Covet, But Pursue Contentment. Where do we find real contentment? Does it exist in our culture? Well, let's look at a few facts. We live in one of, if not the wealthiest culture on planet Earth, but yet we've also never had more debt than we have today. It's true on a national scale that as a, as a nation, our debt, and I went to the debt readout just this morning to check my data, and as of right now, you know that kind of debt uh, calculator thing that's like a rolling amount that's just kind of like going crazy? Well, basically, it's just over 28 trillion, not billion, not million, but $28 trillion. You say, well, Dale, that's just a number I can't relate to. Let me break it down. Per taxpayer, how much do you think that is? Per taxpayer, if you pay any amount of tax, even if you owe zero tax, but per taxpayer, that's $227,000 per person of national debt. We love spending. We love having. Let's break it down even more personal, though, because ah, that's, the, that's kind of the politician's problem, right? Let's make it personal. Let's look at credit card debt, the most dangerous debt of all, where we're buying stuff on credit cards. I'm not even talking about our mortgage. Nothing wrong. I think I just lost. I think we just lost our volume. Uh, testing, testing. We'll give it a second. If not, you can just bring me a handheld... You want me to go to the handheld mic? Oh, we're back. We're back alive, see? See, I coveted having good sound systems, and, and, and I was discontent when it went out. I just built that into the sermon just to illustrate to you how easy it is to desire what we do not have, you know, because we get used to having it. So when the sound system goes out, it's like, oh, I've got to have a sound system. Jesus never had a sound system. He was very content. So anyway, back to the sermon. Here we go. I knew that worked. Great illustration. Credit card debt, which, you know, you can pay tons of interest on, right? The most dangerous type debt. Do you know that the average American has about $6,000 in revolving credit card debt? But let's go a little more personal. Interesting fact on that is for people that make uh, around twenty-five to 50000 a year household income, their credit card debt is about five grand per person. Now, you would think, well, the problem is uh, they just don't have enough money, right? So here's an interesting fact. If you make 100000 or more, or around 100000 per year, you double the income, your credit card debt goes to an average of 13000 per year. You actually more than double your debt when you double your income. Isn't that interesting? When you have the ability to buy more, to own more, 
we somehow, it actually feeds this hunger that we don't have enough. Where does it come from? I think it comes from a struggle with contentment. I think that's what we've got to realize. I know in my life, I've, you know, I've been over my career, I've, I've made very, very little to where in my first church, Becky and I had to uh, sell and refinish antique furniture to help pay the bills and to, to survive in a small church plant that started with 30 people. And another point in my life, I was blessed to pastor a church with with uh, nearly 6,000 members. And, and to be honest, the income was very different. But yet at the same time, there was always this struggle with contentment. I think it's part of the human heart. It's part of the human heart. In fact, if you look back at these verses that came right before this, look at the last several commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie. Behind all of those is often a sense of discontentment. I see, I want, I'll steal it if I can't buy it, I'll lie for it. Uh, maybe it's in relationships, I'll cheat on my spouse because I see another man or woman that I want and I will commit adultery. Underneath all of that is actually the sin of discontentment in different parts of our life. And to let you know that this is about way more than money, let's just read the passage itself. The Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. Here we go. We'll bring it up on the screen. Thou shalt not covet. Pick it up with me in verse 17 of Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Hmm. You ever done that? Like, you know, kind of like my neighbor's house better than my house or I wish I had a house and or I wish I had a bigger house or why does he have a pool and I don't have a pool and I mean thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife whoa there's man my neighbor his wife or flip it husband um they are like so much better than mine you know or, or you begin to covet or desire or wish you had that person in your life. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife. How about this one? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's male servant or female servant. What's that represent? Well, it represents wealth. It represents how many servants do you have? How big is your company? How many people do you supervise? You know, I mean, you, you, you have to realize that in their economy, in their lifestyle, the number of servants directly related to the level of wealth and income and you know i want more people serving me thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox now how many of you this week have coveted your neighbor's ox raise your hand yeah yeah i mean man his ox is more strong than my ox i mean what is that again they're farmers right so if you're farmers this is talking about his tractor can kick my tractor's you know what, okay? Yeah, in the tailpipe. You know, the, the reality is, how, how blessed are you in your business? That's what he's talking about. And then I love the next one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's donkey either. 
I mean, let's not have donkey envy, okay? Yeah, because when you envy your neighbor's donkey, what are you talking about? Well, the ox was the power to plow the fields. The donkey was the means of transportation. You know, what emblem is stamped on your donkey's, can I say ass? Yes, that's a part of it, right? Yeah, so, you know, the reality is, yeah, you know, has it got a big BMW stamped there? Or is there a Lexus symbol on your donkey? Or what, what, what is on your donkey's backside? Oh, or do you have one of these new donkeys that you don't even have to feed it anymore? You just plug your donkey's backside into the plug in the house, and it recharges your donkey. You don't even have to buy hay for your donkey anymore, right? Yeah, see, that's kind of my donkey envy right now. I mean, yeah, I wish I had one of those electric donkeys that you don't have to feed it and water it. You just plug it in. And, you know, we kind of laugh at that. But that's life. How big's your flat screen? Oh, yeah. Becky and I first got married. I mean, I could track our tv envy over the years i mean when we first got married we said we will not be one of these families that's enslaved to watching tv all the time we actually had a, a small black and white portable tv that we decided to keep in the closet when we weren't watching something we had no tv okay and we were so proud of ourselves in a way probably i have to admit that but we were proud of how humble we are with our tv you know and and you know but then eventually you know we broke out and kind of got up, uh, you know, a color TV, but we kept it small, you know. Of course, back then, that, that was easy to do because we couldn't afford a big one, and then we could afford a little bit bigger one and a little bit bigger one, and then the miracle of miracles, the flat screen came out, and, the, and, and then you got high-definition TV where you could see the blades of grass on the football field, and then I, I thought about that, and I said, you know, God wants me to worship him for his creation, Amen. So if this TV gives such bright picture on an 80-inch screen that I can see the blades of grass between the 50-yard line and the goal line, I do it to the glory of God. Amen. And I invest in that TV because I want to see nature at its best. Yeah. In other words, how big is enough? How much is enough? It's a human struggle. It's a struggle of the heart. It's called coveting. Discontentment is the root of all kinds of problems. So the question is, in fact, in case you don't have a problem with donkeys or oxes or neighbors' wives or anything else, he wraps it up with this, or do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So if you look at anything and say, I'm just not happy with what I have. I want more. I need more to be happy. Then that's coveting. Now, when I read the passage, we could just wrap up the sermon and say, don't do that. Quit it. But here's what I've experienced. Telling yourself just not to do it never kills it. So how do you really discover the secret to what Scripture calls contentment that's where we're going to go that's where we're going to go go to a couple new testament passages i told you to put a marker in first timothy 6 but before we go there go with me to philippians man this is a book all about there's a whole chapter on contentment beginning in chapter 4 really chapter 4 of philippians but it, it kind of 
builds to a peak in this verse, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. I'll put the reference on the screen. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked the opportunity. This church had just sent a monetary gift to help pay Paul's expenses as a missionary. And he thanked them. He was thankful for that. But then he makes this statement. Not that I speak from want. In other words, I wasn't living with a desire for your gift. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, in other words, in poverty. But I also know how to get along in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled or going hungry, both having an abundance more than I need and of suffering needs. And then look at verse 13. I'll add one more verse. This next verse says this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A lot of times that verse gets taken out of context. But that verse in its context, what is Paul saying? I can do all things, meaning I can live in poverty or in wealth and still be content. I can do all things. I can have joy and contentment no matter what my circumstances. The best days of my life, or the days where I am really hurting and in want. Wealth, poverty, doesn't matter, he says. I can still be content. Now, when a guy makes a statement like that, I say, wow, I'm not there yet. I, I, I'm hoping I'm getting closer to that, but I don't know that I'm there yet. And, and it makes me wonder, what's underneath this verse? And what he teaches now, now go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll spend the rest of the morning there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he makes this statement. He says, some people misuse the gospel for their, for their own gain. They want to they make money off of it. They want to become wealthy off of it. That's what the context is. But then he makes this statement in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain. And he's talking about financial. He's talking about being successful or kind of wealthy. And here's what he says. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So what he says is this. He says the formula is this. Godliness, as in following Jesus Christ faithfully, following the Word of God, living out the Ten Commandments, living out the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learn to love people as you love yourself. Love God, love people. All of those, what he's saying is godliness, when you combine it with a spirit of contentment, now that's real wealth. No matter what your income is, true wealth is godliness plus contentment. Now let me say something here. Paul's not condemning being wealthy. In fact, I'll show you in a minute that he's going to give some directions to those who happen to be more wealthy. Nothing wrong. In fact, Scripture talks about working diligently, working hard, being faithful, uh, serving your company uh, as if you're working for Jesus Christ. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, hopefully moving up the ladder, making more income. That's never condemned in Scripture. In fact, it's actually 
uh, it says that the, the, the diligent will thrive. So working hard and making more is nothing to be ashamed of. But what he's saying is this. He's saying real wealth, though, is not just making more money. It's combining it with godliness and contentment. What he's doing is not condemning the wealthy. He is redefining what real wealth looks like. Who's the really rich person? Why do we sometimes covet what we don't have and lose the battle or the struggle for contentment? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. What is the secret of contentment or what Paul is saying later in the passage that you might take hold of that which is life indeed? He actually calls it life indeed, true life. So what is the secret of contentment or the path toward what we're going to discover is really life the way God wants us to experience it? Okay, what is the secret? Well, I'm going to give it to you in a passage uh, beginning with what we've already read verse, uh, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. I want you to pick it up with me beginning in verse 7 and we're going to actually go all the way through verse 19. But what I'm going to do to simplify it is I'm going to give you four key principles that this teaches me that unlocks what Paul calls the secret of contentment no matter what you happen to have or make. What do we learn? Let's start reading. Pick it up in verse 7. He says, uh, hey, have contentment. And then he says, verse 7, for we have brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it either. In other words, uh, when you go to heaven, you're not pulling a trailer. Okay, when this life is over, you actually leave this planet with the exact same amount of wealth that you had when you were born, which is what? Anybody know? How much do you have in your pocket when you came out of the womb? Answer? I'm not asking how rich were your parents. That's a different issue because they don't have to give that to you. Yeah, most of us came out of the womb without pockets, and if we did have pockets, they were empty. You got nothing in your diaper. At the other end of life, you don't take anything with you. And he said, that's, that's reality. For we have brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who, and listen to this warning, those who want to get rich, not those who get rich, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For, verse 10, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. He's not saying that money is the root of all evil. Don't, don't misinterpret this. He's saying the love of money is the root of all different kinds or all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs or pains. So what's he teaching first? Number one, don't love it too much. Don't love money. Love the giver, not the gifts. Make sense? In other words, if God is the giver of all good gifts, which it teaches he is in Scripture, if whatever you have, you say, oh, no, Dale, I work for my money. Well, you work for it, yes, but 
Somehow, along the way, you were blessed with education, you were blessed with opportunity, you're blessed with a job, you're blessed with your health, you're blessed with all of that package, all of those are gifts from God. The reality is we need to live with the mindset that every single thing I have belongs to God and is a gift from God on loan to me. And therefore, instead of being prideful, I stay humble. Therefore, instead of saying, wow, look at what I have accumulated Look at my gifts. Don't love the gifts. Love the giver. When you are blessed, let that blessing stimulate a deeper love for Jesus Christ. Ultimately, of course, our greatest love for Christ is grounded not in material things but in our spiritual lives because all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God and if you don't think you sin all you got to do is listen to the 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 10th commandment about coveting there's no one in this room doesn't covet beginning with me and at times you covet everything on that list from house to 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 wife or relationships to to a bigger, better church or job called the ox or, or the car called the donkey or, or how many people work for you and how many people are serving you. How many, how many servants do you have on your team? As you look at all of that, we covet. But God, by His grace, came and died on a cross for our sins in spite of who we are, gives us life eternal, gives us eternal forgiveness... And he gives it to us as a gift from God out of the love of his heart because of what Christ did on the cross. That is why you love God. But in addition to that, God blesses us. We live in a very blessed time and place. So don't love money. Guard your heart from loving it too much. One thing I've uh, mentioned before is this. When it comes to loving God, loving people, Scripture, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, in essence, this is what I'm saying. Loving God preeminently above all else is the essential first step to loving or liking other things appropriately. It's not condemning the idea that you might say, oh, I love my wife. Yeah, I do love my wife. Uh Uh-oh, is that violating loving God? No, but I need to love God more than I love my wife. Do I love living in Carlsbad, California? Yes, Encinitas, Carlsbad, this whole area. It's a great area to live. I love where I live. I love my West Virginia Mountaineer sports team, and they will be in the national playoffs this year. That shows that love can also be deceitful. But anyway, okay, it can, can, can blur your common sense. But yeah, I, so I love sports. It, nothing wrong with loving the Padres. But you got how do you keep all of those things that you love with a little L in their appropriate place in life? It's by loving God preeminently is the essential first step to loving every other part of my life appropriately. That's the big idea. That's the number one step. But then there's a second one. Don't just, don't love things. Also, don't live for money or things that it buys. Don't live for it. Live for a greater cause. So you love the greater giver. You live for the greater cause in life. 
something that captures your heart, your soul, your passions. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me in this passage is he's obviously teaching about our relationship to money and things, beginning in verse 6, right? And, and he does that all the way down through verse 10, you know, hey, watch out for the love of money, blah, 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 blah. And then in verse 17, he's going to say, instruct those who are rich in this present world uh, to, here's how you relate to your riches. And then, but verse 11 through 16, it almost feels like Paul gets off topic. He quits talking about money, and he just talks about Jesus. Now, I want to read it to you the way he wrote it, and I want you to listen to the excitement and the passion in this section of Scripture because it's not like, oh, yes, let me tell you a few spiritual truths. Listen to it. Right after saying, watch out for the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. He says in verse 11, but flee these things. In other words, run away from the love of money. Flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. I could add contentment. And then he says this, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and which you were made you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. He's coming back, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who... He who is the blessed, only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen and can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I don't read that to hype it up. I'm just reading it like he wrote it. He even ends it with a big, strong amen. And then he goes, oh, yeah, back to money. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. What's he doing? Here's what he's doing. He says, flee from letting money control you, letting things, possessions control you. Flee from that and get excited about Jesus. Get excited about eternal things. Get excited about the kingdom of God fighting the good fight of the faith. Get excited about ministry. Get excited about what it means to be part of a greater cause. Why does he put that in the middle of a section on money? Here's why. You will never outrun the love of money unless you are chasing something or someone you love even more. See, I think it's impossible just to suck it up and say, I'm not going to covet. I'm going to be content. Yeah, good luck with that. See, what he's saying is, if you don't want to live for money, you better live for something more exciting than money. You live for the kingdom of God. You live for Jesus Christ. And when you fall in love with something or someone, greater than a bigger house, greater than a car I can plug in, which I'd still like to get someday, but greater than, okay, nothing wrong with any of those things. 
the deal is, don't love it, don't live for it, but love someone greater than things and live for a cause greater than building your own little financial kingdom. Again, let me make sure you're not misunderstanding me. This passage is not condemning being wise stewards of money. It's not condemning having a financial plan. It's not condemning planning for your future and saving. In fact, that's taught in Scripture in other passages. It's not condemning even that you can enjoy some of God's blessing. I'll show you that in a minute. What it's saying is, don't love it. Don't live for it. Which raises a question. Why is it so important to us? Why do we struggle with it? Um, or another way to put it is this. One person once said, I don't love money. I love the things that money buys and provides. That's why I don't have any money. I got a lot of stuff. And I'm in debt. That's the American way. See, we don't struggle with the love of money. We struggle with the love for the things we think money supplies to us. And, and that's where the next passage comes in. Look at verse 17. He says, Now instruct those who are rich in this present world. Because there are a lot of people that are blessed. And in our country, I would say on a global scale, where when I spend my time in Africa, a lot of my partners in Africa live on anywhere from one to three U.S. dollars per day. And then they farm. On a global standard, the average American is in the top one half of 1% of global wealth. I know that when we have to pay our bills, I don't feel that way. But the fact of the matter is, we live in a lifestyle that very few people around the planet enjoy. And that's actually true of a person on welfare in America. Lives at a higher standard of living than the average person on the planet. Is in the upper few percentage points. And I don't say that to shame any of us. Just realize we're blessed to be where we are, when we are at this point in history. But what is it that, we, that drives us? Listen to verse 17. It's going to tell us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Number one, it makes us feel proud. That's status. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. When I fix my hope on it, that's security. So what I, what I really realize is this. We often look to money for three things. Now, and, and the big idea is don't trust it. Let me give you the big idea first. Don't put your trust in money. Put your trust in Christ, his power, his provision, his purposes in your life. So don't love it too much. Don't live for it too often. And don't trust it ever because it will disappoint you. Money and possessions always promise more than they deliver and cost you more than you want to pay. They provide three things, status, security, significance.
But what he's saying is real status is in Christ when you're a beloved child of God. Real security is in Christ when you realize how much you are loved and secure forever. And real significance is in Christ because you're a part of a mission to change eternity. Let me just say that one more time. Real status can be found in Christ, not our wealth. Okay? Real status, real security. See, our PowerPoint, our tech people are so good. They brought it all up for you. This passage doesn't condemn having things because look at the next phrase. Leave this list up as I read this. He says, but instead of being conceited and fixing your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but put your hope in God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Verse 17 actually teaches that God is the source of all that we have and it's okay to even enjoy his provisions. Nothing wrong with enjoying a trip or a vacation or a home or a car or a donkey that you can plug in, whatever it is. It's okay to get enjoyment out of God's blessings as long as you follow it with the next verse. Verse 18, instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Some translations translate that, take hold of true life, not the pseudo-life that the culture offers. True life. So what's he saying in verse 18 and 19? Final point is this. Don't love it, don't live for it, don't trust in it. Final point, but invest in eternal treasure. Take hold of that which is life indeed. He says, you know, God supplies us with richly. He supplies us richly, and it's okay to enjoy it, but be rich. Just make sure that the richer you are, the more generous you are. That the more you have, the more you give away. Because real wealth is measured not in what you keep, but in what you give. I'm not talking about just giving to the church, but that's part of it. Be generous. I'm talking about investing in the kingdom of God. First priority, give to your church. First priority is set aside a percentage. For Becky and I, we always said 10% was our starting point. At least 10% of our salary is going to be given away. And then save about 10% and then live on about 80% at most or less. And you'll be surprised how much better your stress will be and how much better your life will be because you, you, you protect yourself from loving it too much, living for it, and trusting in it when you instead invest in eternal treasure. What is that? It's the kingdom of God. It's helping people come to know Jesus Christ and be changed forever because we need to realize that, you know, Jesus said, yeah, this life is important, but the real, the real deal is the life to come. We have an eternity ahead of us. This is a brief, and it's gone. Don't live for this life. 
invest in eternal things, helping people know Jesus Christ, acts of compassion, acts of generosity, investing in ministry that will make a difference forever. That's real joy. In John 10.10, a passage I've heard Ryan quote a couple times in this series, Jesus put it this way, I came that you might have life, that is eternal life, forgiveness by God's grace, and that you might have it abundantly. This abundant life described in these principles of the Ten Commandments, described by Jesus as loving God, loving people, this is the good life that you may lay hold of that which is life indeed. And if you do that, you can have real contentment at any level of income. I've seen this by contrast just over the last month. I spent time uh, in Arkansas training missionaries who live around the world on biblical leadership. Some of those missionaries that I trained, both then and also when I go to Africa especially, I have met people that have more joy and contentment than you can imagine, and they live in a mud hut. The most clear example of it was one day when Becky and I and several people from Seacoast sat in about a 10 by 15 foot mud hut home and listened to the story by translation of a young couple in Rwanda with a couple kids, and they were sharing the joy they have in Jesus Christ. And at one point, they, they pointed for us to even gather as a small team in her home, they had to bring in a couple wooden benches for us to sit on. And we're in this mud hut, and she points in the corner and she says, I now have a water filter. It was a five-gallon, uh, about a five-gallon white bucket with a little filter on top so I can filter my water instead of having to boil it all the time. I have a little water filter in the corner that will drip clean water for me and I now actually have a, a pit toilet out back behind my house where I can now do my business in a pit toilet standing on a plank of wood. And, and I now have a little vegetable garden, which I didn't understand the importance of, out in front of my mud hut. Uh, and my husband no longer beats me when he's drunk on banana beer like he used to for years because Jesus changed him. And now... We actually help other couples know how to have good marriages. And then she, and she said, and by the way, both of us have AIDS, but neither of our children have AIDS. What a miracle. And she said, what else could I ask for? Now, I'm looking around the mud hut thinking, I got a whole lot of things you could ask for. But she was a, a picture of contentment in the midst of poverty. Probably lived on a dollar a day and farm to feed her family. But she loved Jesus. She has eternal life. She knows where she's headed, and she's serving the kingdom of God. She had contentment. You can be in poverty and have contentment. I've seen that. This month, I saw a living example of it. As I spoke at the funeral, my own brother, who at age 71, in church, after doing announcements and saying a prayer, stepped off the stage, had a cardiac arrest, which in the next few days took his life. 
My brother was a wealthy surgeon, top-rated surgeon in their area, surgeon of the year just a couple years before, caregiver of the year for his region, loved Jesus Christ more than anything. My brother made a lot of money, but he was always a living example to me of a wealthy man who always refused to love it more than Jesus. He refused to live for accumulating things. He refused to invest in just his wealth, but instead was generous, investing in the kingdom of God from the time he was a poor intern resident surgeon until he died. He invested faithfully in his family, in his faith, and the kingdom of God around the world. He went to Africa with me, supported what we do, and his kids will tell you that he modeled to them that loving Jesus, serving Jesus, loving on your family, and investing in the global kingdom of God were his priorities. Everybody knew it. And he died with no regrets. When that happens, it's a reminder for me, for all of you. Don't wait till next week to start living this way. Start today. And someday you die with no regrets, like my brother. Father God, thank you for your wisdom in your word. Thank you for how you teach us the importance of not coveting more and more stuff that we don't have. Being content because we love something more than stuff. We live for something greater than stuff. We don't trust in stuff. We don't trust in a big enough bank account to be fixed for life. We trust in you as the provider of life and the giver of all good gifts. We trust the giver, not the gifts. And we want to choose today to say, help us be more generous and invest in the kingdom of God, laying up eternal treasure that is life indeed. God, may I be reminded today, help me do a better job at that. And would you teach all of us these lessons? In Christ's name, amen.